hopefully I've given you enough time to, to get to Matthew chapter 22. So if you would stand with me tonight. I'm going to read one verse together. You can see from our title screen tonight that we're going to look at uh, a myriad of verses uh, together as we think about uh, voting and we think about um, just different things when it comes to being a Christ follower. If you could only see my notes. Matthew chapter 22, and let's read a verse uh, 20 and 21. Jesus at this point has been uh, questioned. And they think uh, that they've got him in a trap. So let's actually back up to verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. With God's word ringing in our ears tonight, let's ask him for his divine help as we navigate through what we're going to talk about this evening. Father, we come to you tonight very much aware of the fact that we find ourselves in a a contentious political climate, and that is being charitable at best. And Christians, uh, not thinking biblically and not being governed by your word, have contributed to that lack of charity and civility. For that we repent. But tonight, Father, we need help from your word because you've planted us here. You've allowed us to have a citizenship of this earth and of this country, all the while allowing us, those of us tonight, under the sound of my voice, who are Christ followers, to have a citizenship in heaven. So how do we navigate these things? We know your word is sufficient for all these things. So we ask that as we dive into it together tonight, you would help us to understand that we would be charitable with one another, that we would think well about it. We're also aware tonight that we're not the only church in Springfield. Let's think of our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, tonight at Parkcrest Baptist Church, a staff member sick, and, and their Wednesday night disrupted. And so we pray for healing. We also pray that you would uh, grant them the ability and the strength and the power according to your word to see gospel advance take place where you have placed them in the city. So be with us now as we make our way through your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you were here last week, and if you weren't, that's okay. Uh, it's the, the podcast is up to date. You can go and listen to that sermon. We kind of tried to establish a baseline uh, for our thinking when it comes to the Christian and politics. I want to give you a little bit of personal background on myself just so we're all on the same page. I was born and raised in uh, Davenport, Iowa. Um, If you know anything about politics in Iowa, we're a proud people uh, because while a lot of people view Iowa and probably Missouri as flyover country, you got to come to Iowa if you want to win the presidency. In fact, most Iowans will tell you Iowa will never tell you who will win the presidency, but it will tell you who won't. So we're pretty proud of that. Uh, I turned 18 shortly uh, or shortly after or excuse me, I turned 18 uh, in September of 2007, uh, which means that the first election that I was able to participate would happen as a voter in the state of Missouri in 2008. 
Now, Iowa is incredibly uh, different as a state. You have to register as a, par- a part of a political party in order to cast a primary ballot. When the primaries were taking place, I wasn't actually old enough to vote. So I moved to Missouri, and I've cast all of my presidential ballots in this particular state. Which makes me weird, because really coming to Missouri and the first election that I ever participated in, the only thing I knew about when I filled out my ballot was the national race for president. And yet, being a good, dutiful citizen, filled out the entirety of my ballot, voting on judges, state senators, state representatives, and even a couple of amendments of which I knew nothing about. This is exactly who the state of Missouri wants showing up to vote, right? This guy has no clue what he's doing. Well, fast forward now uh, 12 years. This will be my fourth presidential election to cast my ballot. And for some of you, this is a very exciting time for you, even though you could give a rip about who's running. Um, You just know that you have a voice all of a sudden. You did it a year ago, and now you do. And you're like, I'm going to let my voice be heard. And you should. Or should you? Christians love to debate these things. And so as we get into the pressure point portion of this sermon series, what I want to do is take you uh, through a series of questions that you should consider or you need to think about as you think about how should I inform myself Uh, when it comes to voting as a Christian. One of the things that is really cool and also snooty is to be an independent voter in the state of Iowa because you cannot caucus. You cannot participate in uh, the presidential selection process without being registered to a party. Now, I showed up to the party late, so I never registered for a party. And I'm I'm very proud to hang the I next to my name and say I'm independent. But realistically, even as a Christ follower and someone who's very uh, thoughtful on political subjects, that I is really misleading. And if I told you that there was a C hanging next to my name, some of you would freak out because you think, wait a minute, is he a communist? No, I'm a Christ follower. Even though I'm an independent of a political party, there is still someone who informs my political thinking. And I think it should inform yours as well. And so I want to answer tonight three questions. We don't know how many we'll have in the final sermon, but tonight we're just going to tackle three. So three different things that I want you to think about as you get ready to consider how you might uh, cast your ballot. Number one, do I have to vote? I get this uh, sometimes. Do I have to vote? Should I vote? Is a Christian required to vote? Uh, B.G. Warfield famously said, if you put five theologians in a room and ask them about their beliefs on the inspiration of the Bible, you would get six different opinions. And I would make the argument that if we were to walk into the sanctuary tonight and ask the adults, notice the scare quotes that I use there, adults in the sanctuary, is a Christian required to vote? I think we would get more than six opinions. So how should we even think about this? Well, first and foremost, we have to go back to where we landed last week and talk about uh, the fact that we can turn through this book and we can read it cover to cover 
and we're never going to find anyone articulating the idea that you as a Christian are required to vote. Okay, so I'm off the hook. If I don't want to vote, I don't have to vote. Not so fast, my friend, to quote Lee Corso. While you don't are not going to find a scriptural requirement to vote, in fact, there's a, a block of Christians that I uh, respect, uh, hold in high esteem. Uh, there's a group of Christians who are committed to what is called convictional inaction. I think there are a lot of congressmen who would like to be a part of a party that would be called convictional in action. But these Christians, by being convictionally, they have a strong conviction of being inactive. They're, it's based on this principle that if the followers of Jesus would intentionally refrain from voting, then political candidates, organizations, and parties in the United States might make significant changes in order to woo their vote. This is a legitimate, I think it's a, a responsible at times way of thinking about voting. You say, oh, you find it to be a responsible way, so you're saying we don't have to vote? I said I find it to be a responsible argument. I don't think it's the most compelling argument. But what you're not going to hear from my mouth, and if you want to get yourself enthralled in a contentious debate with the college pastor, Try to insist to me that voting, not voting is sinful because you cannot find a spot in Scripture where you would be commanded that you have to vote. Now, I think that there's a biblical argument that you should vote. And all of my civics friends just were on the edge of like getting ready to walk out. Just put, calm down. So I find myself in a camp that would say, as a Christian, I think you should vote. In fact, I think you almost borderline are obligated to. And here's the reason why. I want to give you some biblical principles for why I think you should vote. If you don't find it compelling, um, that's up to the Holy Spirit and his word to do and good conversation. Voting, number one, if I were going to give you the biblical principles for voting, Voting, number one, helps us to fill our responsibility to do a couple things. Number one, prevent evil, punish evildoers, and generally promote justice. Look at, uh, we'll go back to our uh, Minor Prophets friends, just for a verse, just for a verse, Micah 6, 8. So flip over into your Old Testaments there. Let's look at this uh, particular verse. I know some of you are getting the cold sweats having to go back into the Minor Prophets. It's okay, just for a verse. There is a biblical principle that by casting your ballot, you are, by your responsibility, helping to prevent evil, punish evildoers, and generally promote justice. Ver Matthew, or <laughs> Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Flip over to Matthew Back over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. So I, I think by casting a ballot, not only are you uh, promoting justice generally and giving means by which uh, the uh, we can think about uh, loving 
our neighbor, which would be the second thing. So not only does voting help you to prevent evil, to punish evildoers, and generally promote justice, but it also helps us as we think about loving our neighbors as ourselves. Look at Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you step into a, a voting booth or when you cast a ballot early, however you choose to exercise your American-given right. Notice my American-given right. It's something that's unique to America to have this level of input. What you are doing as you think through who you would vote for is you are loving your neighbor as yourself as you promote justice, punishing evildoers, and preventing evil. I love people who will tell me, I don't vote out of a sense that, you know, I just don't find it to be loving. I want to love people. I want to serve people. Politics is contentious, ugly business. I want to love and care for people. In national elections, you get the opportunity by casting your ballot to love your neighbor who you will never meet. There are going to be people that you will meet one day in heaven that you, have never, you will never meet on this side of eternity. How can you love them? How can you care for them? By promoting a nationalistic, if you will, type of love. Now, how you determine that is going to be filtered through biblical worldviews, uh, through your own personal convictions, right? We leave a lot of latitude to disagree here. And I would make the argument that ha by having a lot of latitude to disagree, your life is more full because life is boring if everybody agrees with you on everything. But you get to promote justice. You get to love neighbors who are in faraway places that you will never see or get to. And I would make this, and you may find that you quibble with me here, but I don't know that I'm wrong, and I don't know that you will disagree. So here we go. In some sense, listen to this. In some sense, we are rulers who are raised up by God to choose those who will rule us. Remember, we consent to being governed as a group of people. We choose who will govern us. And in some sense, we've been given the obligation and the right to select rulers. So in God's sovereignty, in placing us here as American citizens and giving us rights via that country, we pick the king. Except he's no stinking king, right? That's We've got a group of guys, 1776, we're not having none of this king stuff no more. We operate in a, in a constitutional republic, or I, I like to remind people, a representative democracy. Uh, my particular uh, district congressman to the Missouri State House, Steve Helms, 
I like to remind him that he works for me. I don't work for him. He works for me. He has a responsibility to operate in my best interest as a constituent. I put him there. And if he doesn't operate according to what I believe my convictions are, I'm going to four more years. You get to go <coughs> and send him home. Or bring him back home because he lives here. You have a responsibility. You get to choose your rulers. One of the reasons why this is so opposite of where you think about the freedom that you have and you compare that with the text we read as our opening call to worship tonight and Romans chapter 13, Paul and the other apostles had no voice. God has given you a voice and I think he would be pleased if you would use it. And I would like to trace this out, if I can, in a circle, a vicious circle. People elect rulers in the United States of America. Those rulers pass laws. Those laws affect people. There is a circle of consequence. And I'm telling you what I can tell from best of Scripture. God judges all of those people. by their action and by their inaction. Now, he knows the motivations of the heart, and it is possible for you to abstain from voting with a pure heart and a pure conscience. But I'm going to suggest I think the biblical evidence and the finer points of society would argue that God has placed you in a specific place, period, and time to help make not only your life better, but the lives of the people around you. But here's, the, here's my sticking point. A lot of people get passionate about voting every four years. And they neglect to go to the ballot boxes every time they're open. You've been given unimaginable freedom. You pick city council leaders. You pick people who will sit on school boards. You pick people who will uh, be county commissioners will be tax assessors. You, you have so many opportunities. But if you look at voter turnout rates, it's amazing how many Christians in Springfield only seem to care about who sits in the White House, but don't seem to give two rips about who sits in any other seat of power. You'll be judged for those as well. There's not one action that you commit on earth where you are not responsible under heaven to God. So this isn't a uh, Let's vote for this candidate or let's vote for that candidate. This is, uh, I've got to think about voting all of the time that it's given to me and how that's going to affect me. Okay, so how should I vote? But let's get to some, like, David, okay, whatever. I'm going to vote or I'm not going to vote, and you're not going to convince me because I'm, my mind's already made up. Okay, fine. Let's talk about specific issues then. That's where we're going to spend the rest of this week and next week. Let's talk about religious liberty. Let's talk about religious liberty. How should Christians think about candidates and their platforms? Look, I'm not here to advocate, advocate for a platform as much as you might want me to. This is not a stump speech. If I was going to do stump speeches, I'd just run for an office myself. I can't. I'm too young. No, they keep telling me that. They're keeping me down, the man. A bunch of men in 1776, they're the worst. I'm just reading the Constitution again today, reminding myself of the fact that I'm still ineligible for many seats. 
unfortunate. So this is not a stump speech. I'm not coming here to deliver a speech to you advocating for a position or not advocating for a position or advocating for a person or not advocating for a person. What I'm trying to give you is a framework to think through some key issues that should inform the way that you think about voting. And Christians, good Christians, convictional Christians are going to come to differing viewpoints on even some of these things. Number one, let's take a break from reading the scriptures and be reminded of this principle. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This is amendment number one in the Bill of Rights for all of you constitutional theorists. This is an addition after the original constitution is passed. Our Bill of Rights are added here We've added amendments since then. But Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, in this country, you can't make a statewide religion and you can't prohibit people from practicing their religious beliefs or their lack of religious beliefs. And it's our responsibility as Christians to think through how this affects people. So look back, if you will, at uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. I'm about to maybe rewrite history for some of you, and by rewrite history, I mean actually give you history. I don't think you can rewrite history, by the way. Um, just, yeah. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. They said, Caesar, right? Jesus said, whose likeness or inscription is on this in verse 20? They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The establishment clause in our Constitution is fundamentally framed around this biblical principle. But that doesn't mean that our founding fathers were Christians. In fact, a lot of them were functioning deists. Our country is loosely based on Judeo-Christian values. But this narrative that seems to be uh, running rampant right now, that the United States of America was founded by a bunch of cisgender, colonial oppressive, white Christian men, is about as true as I am the Pope right now. I can assure you I am not. Things would look a little bit different in Vatican City if I was. I can tell you that right now. Our founding fathers understood that there are two realms. They coexist together. There is a government. In Jesus' words, there is the affirmation that government is given to us by God, but that doesn't mean that government gets to run the things of God. There is a clear separation of church and state. And my friends, I'm here to tell you this evening that Thomas Jefferson was very fearful of the state imposing its will on the church. This is why we have this amendment in our Constitution. Also, Thomas Jefferson cut out the parts he didn't like of the Bible. So to hold him up as a glowing example of Christianity, when he wouldn't even be allowed into membership in the modern-day church, if Thomas Jefferson showed up with his Bible with pen knife cuts out of it, we would not be like, yeah, come in. You know, maybe you should be a deacon. We've got some great administrative tasks. 
We've seen some of the writings you've done. You know, Constitution, Declaration, kind of a big deal. No, he would be rejected for church membership. Why? Because the inclination of being a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the standard, not your political party affiliation, which is why we never ask you that when you come to join our church. We'll go, are you a registered Democrat? Well, you can't come if you're a registered Democrat. And anyone who would act like that, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, they're to be anathema. Anyone who would add to the gospel or take away, if you make re- a religious test a part of serving in public office, that's a no-no. And if you make public office requirements a test of getting into the Christian church, that also is a no-no. And the church should be the most vocal people on the planet about this. Here's another reason why you should care about where people land on the issue of religious liberty. We pursue the idea of religious liberty being protected as a genuine expression of loving your neighbor. Your neighbor has a right to pray or not to pray to any God that he wants. And Christians who want to impose Christian legislation that would strengthen Christianity as being the functional religion of this country, I'm going to tell you as a theologian, I think that's a terrible idea. And you say, why? Well, Constantine, he's this famous emperor, and he comes along and he's like, you know what? We're going to make religion the state religion. And all of a sudden, there's mass revival. Everybody is a Christ follower. The only problem is they're only Christ followers because it got them something. It got them ethical standing, equitable treatment in the kingdom. That's not what we want. We already have enough misconceptions about Christianity. And so to try to impose Christianity as some sort of state-organized religion, number one, is a violation of our founding principles. And as Christians who want to be submissive to the laws that govern us, we would want to rise up and say, that's unacceptable. I want to protect my neighbor's right to worship or not worship or pray to or not pray to the God he chooses. Because James Madison will argue in Federalist Paper Number 10, the strongest way for Christianity to have the biggest play is to operate in a society where there are competing worldviews, where the strongest worldview wins. Do you believe that Christianity has, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has enough power to convert people, or do we have to mandate that people will be Christ followers in order to get them in the kingdom? Because here's the deal, if you mandate that they have to be a part of the kingdom, they will be a part of the kingdom of Christ on this earth, but they won't be in the age to come. We shoot ourselves in the foot when we try to mandate this. We see the, the rise right now of theonomy. This idea that we just need to go back to the like an Old Testament understanding of the law and just rule that way. That is a recipe for people becoming Christ followers for no reason. You guys are blessed. You, you may not think this. I know there's a lot of uh, uh, chatter on the interweb these days about how Christians are so oppressed because of the advancement of LGBTQ plus rights and uh, the marginalization of church and the family, all of these things. Here's the deal. Now, when you come to church in 2020 and 2021, you have to come because you genuinely want to be here, not because there's some sort of cultural or societal benefit for being a Christ follower. We just eradicated all of the people who are here just to sell insurance. 
but it doesn't get you the same standing in the community to be a good member of a church, especially when that church stands opposed to much of what the right side of history looks like. Furthermore, I make this argument. By protecting our religious liberties, we're also in that same clause, protecting by extension uh, the losing of other rights. Because guess what? As much as people would love you to believe that the First Amendment is only about religious liberty, it's not. Amendment 1 of our Constitution protects free speech, which we want for people. The free exchange of ideas is a very uniquely American concept, and Christians inside of America benefit from not having to worry about religious persecution for speaking freely. It protects the press, and I know, right, they're not our fans right now, especially evangelical white Christians. They, they don't like it. Hey, you've got to have the press free and unrestrained. You may not like their conclusions, but we definitely don't want the government controlling what they write and say. It protects your right to assemble. <laughs> we'll just skip over that for right now. It also protects you when you think through and vote according to your conscience on the issue of religious liberty. It protects your right to take a redress of grievances. Man, what a phrase, right? Redress of grievances. Protects your right to stand up to the government without fear of impunity. Like, they can't strike you back because you have the audacity to speak out against the state. I wonder where that might be helpful. I'm going to argue in this very pulpit. There is coming a day when we will probably have to make an even bigger decision about where we stand. And having those rights protected is essential to Christian liberty. But I'm going to also make the case that it's the, uh, the help of kingdom advance. Someone said, well, they can take away our religious liberties. And we'll still preach the gospel. Yes, we will. They can take away our religious liberty. We'll protect our pastors. We'll make sure that they're fine and all of those things. And we'll get them to, to safe spaces and they'll be, they'll be fine. We'll continue to press on. Yes, we will. But right now, nobody had to walk to three different checkpoints tonight to make sure that they were going to uh, the, the right gathering place for church. Right now, tonight, you're not sitting in here with the lights kind of turned down and everybody kind of being quiet. We're whisper singing because we're fearful that the government might come in and shut us down and beat us all up. There is a lot of energy that we don't have to use. And I'm going to make the argument has made us soft as American Christians because we don't have to use that. And so rather than using the extra energy that we have as a result of not having to mislead the government to gather to worship, we've just become soft and lazy and not advancing the gospel. By protecting our religious liberty, it gives us the opportunity to a kingdom advance. All right, last thing, and I will go quickly. Gender and marriage. Genesis 1.26 says that man and women are created in the image of God, and then in Genesis chapter 2, God comes back and says, and Adam verbalizes this, that he is going to leave and cleave to his wife, and they will be one flesh. God's word defends and defines gender and marriage. Gender as being two binary options, male and female. I said to someone today, the interesting thing about our current gender debate, and, and I love our brothers and sisters, uh, not in Christ and in Christ, that have struggles in this area. But if we were to be able to pull someone out of the grave and be able to extract blood from them, we would be able to determine whether they were male or female because it's encoded in our DNA. That should tell us something. God also defines marriage as be 
being the union between one man and one woman for their lifetime. Now, the Pope understands the pressures and climates that are coming towards the Roman Catholic Church, declared that priests should consider the option for uh, same-sex civil unions. I'm here to tell you tonight the church should oppose at every turn uh, further legislation that would argue that marriage is anything other than between one man and one woman. But if we want people to thrive, we have to advocate for principles that are governed in Scripture. This means, though, that we advocate for marriage, listen very closely, without demonizing the position we disagree with. Christians have failed on this forefront, like tremendously. It wasn't so gauche, we did it in a huge way. We've blown it. I am not shocked that a Burgerfell is, is codified as law. Because in no loving way, prof with prophetic voices, have we stood up and said, this is detrimental for your life. But guess what? There's a new generation of brand new Christians at some level who can winsomely and wisely engage with people in calm, cool, and collected ways. Probably in person would be the best way to do this. Christians must take a stand on these issues, but our language must be careful, loving, but firm. We advocate politically along with witness. I'll conclude with this because this will set us up for next week. I would question you all to think for a moment this morning. When you got up, whatever time that was, when you made the decision to eat your breakfast or not eat breakfast, when you got ready for the day and you were thinking about the things to come, I would venture to ask you this question. How much of your decisions for what you would do today was governed by the Missouri Penal Code? I would guarantee you that the majority of you, unless you're just outright lawbreakers, which we can talk about that later, were not informed by a penal code. Christians for far too long have assumed that just by merely advocating for public policy and getting laws passed, that we will suddenly change the hearts and affections of mankind. That's interesting because nowhere in Scripture does it say if you'll just pass more Christian laws, more people will become Christians. Listen, we're going to have to think through legislative issues. Next week we're going to talk about a whopper of one. When we talk about Christians and how they think about life and abortion. But let me just illustrate to you this way. The majority of you do not make decisions based on the laws that are codified in this state. Some of you just downright ignored them on your way here tonight. You know who you are. They didn't even inform you 30 minutes ago as you were going <coughs> over the speed limit. So what I'm saying here is public policy should be advocated by Christians according to their beliefs. But listen to me. Strong, gracious, public, winsome witness has done more in the past three decades than we ever would have accomplished through some legislative agendas that we've tr been trying to ram through. Why? Because Christians have become passionate about these things. And they recognize that I'm far more capable of convincing someone if I can have a meal with them and exchange ideas. I wonder who that sounds like. 
But those ideas, these principles, have to be governed by Scripture. I'm afraid far too many of us are informed by non-scriptural voices. And I'll ask you this. One of the leading voices in the conservative movement in America today opened his show by laughing about and making jokes about a New Yorker Zoom call where a reporter exposed himself on the call. Because that reporter isn't on his political side. And millions of Christians today listen and laugh along. How is that reflecting any of the fruit of the Spirit? These are the voices that we're listening to. These are the voices that are informing us. And rather than heartbreak, we're giggling and laughing because it's funny. There's nothing funny about that. And we would be appalled. We would be calling for people's heads if someone opened their opposite side of the aisle show today laughing and giggling about abortion. We must be formed more by Scripture than we are by talking heads. And if we do this, there's no guarantee that Anything will happen. But we do know this, that when I stand before God and I have to give an account for the way that I've lived my life, yes, there are things that I'm ashamed of. But I've been striving to live for His glory and not my own. Let's pray together this evening.